0: junior high gym and locker room uh, is in Pineville, West Virginia, okay, down in the county. Well, my teammates and me had traveled to play some riveting junior high basketball back in 1988, and actually, in an odd twist, our coach had only taken six of us to this particular away game for the Sophia Junior High Blue Hawks. And we traveled to Palm. I guess they couldn't get a bus is what it boiled down to. Maybe there's a bigger, better story to that than I know. But anyway, he, he gets a van and he puts six of us in it and he drives us down there himself. Now, <clears throat> if you know anything about basketball, the game is played with five players on each team. So six players means that if somebody fouled out, and in junior high, somebody always fouls out. when that person fouled out, that would only leave the other five guys to play the rest of the game without any substitutions. And the sixth guy on our team that night was pretty awful, okay? He was on the team because everybody made the team in junior high. That's how it worked out. Um, And it wasn't me, by the way. Um, I wasn't the sixth man. But But that sixth guy would only be put in to give a guy a break every now and then. Now, I was the starting point guard, and let me tell you what that means. That means I was really short means that I could dribble and pass and play defense, but I couldn't shoot, Okay, which is still true today. Well, our opponents knew that fouls could really hurt us, so what do you think they did? They full-court pressed us the whole game. Now, if you don't know what that means, y'all, it means that they played defense from one end of the floor to the other. Usually, people will back up at half-court and play defense against you near the goal where you're shooting. Well, they played defense the whole length of the court, the whole time. And it wore us slap out. And let me teach you a little bit of basketball fundamental this morning, because I know you're dying to learn some basketball fundamentals this morning. The way to beat the press is to pass the ball. Okay, we got amens here, okay? You pass the ball to beat the press. You don't try to dribble through the press because they're going to trap you and you're going to turn the ball over. That's why they press you, okay? So over and over and over, our coach yelled, hollered, screamed, spit, move the ball, pass the ball. Well, we weren't very good, okay? And it wasn't going very good for us at all. So on one particular inbounds pass... I took the ball that was passed into me. I dribbled all the way down the floor, coast to coast, scored a layup. And I was on top of the world. Check me out. Again, I didn't score much. So for me to get a bucket, especially after some impressive ball handling and dribbling to get through there, man, I was on top of the world. And immediately, coach called timeout. And I'm walking over. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he looked at me and he said, sit down. And he put that other guy in to take my place. What the heck, I thought. I mean, what did I do? I mean, besides dominate the court just then. Let me tell you what I did do. Let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't listen. I didn't follow the coaching. Actually, I did exactly the opposite of what he was telling us to do, which was pass the ball. Don't try to dribble through the press. So my successful disobedience was rewarded with a ticket to the bench. I got put in back in eventually because somebody fouled out. But it took a while, and I got an awful tongue lashing while I'm on the bench. And it really, that tongue lashing came down to three words, and it was pass the ball. Yes, sir. Did I listen? Sometimes. But not very well most of the time. I mean, I thought I knew better. I thought I knew what would be better for me. My glory. I had scored. And I got a reward that was odd for me. I got, wow, I scored. And you know, that was the real issue. It was about my success, my abilities, my 13-year-old wisdom up against this crusty old coach. What's he know? He's just a health teacher, right? What did he know about the game of basketball? I mean, really, for Pete's sake. That was my attitude. That was my thought. But I learned a valuable lesson that I've never forgotten since that day. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to follow the instructions. Sometimes I don't like it when I have to follow instructions. Sometimes... I want to seek my own glory, my own good. And I don't want to listen to what other people are saying. Health officials and such. I know better. I know what's right for me. That's stupid. Well, I learned that night that sometimes you got to listen to somebody. Sometimes you just got to obey because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes the outcome of obeying isn't what you want it to look like. But you obey anyway. Does that make me a sheep? Maybe. I'm already preaching. I've got to stop. Anyway, two of our disciple friends are about to have a dribble when they should have passed kind of experience today. And we're going to see that in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. John, I've got no control of slides up here, so I'm going to need you to... Help me there, so if you would please stand as we read the Word of God from Matthew chapter twenty verses seventeen through twenty eight this is woo, this is quite a passage. and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified." And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. God, we desperately need your help. We need you to speak and be heard through your word and through the power of your spirit, and we need you to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we know that we ask these things according to your will, so we know that they will be done. And we will disobey, and you will correct and discipline us, and you will love us perfectly. And when all is said and done, we will stand before you spotless and blameless because of your grace. Help us to understand that and then implement it as we leave this place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Employ that seat again. Verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... Actually, let me see. We're going to read 17, 18, 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Okay, so one thing that I want to do as we begin this, I want to note the geography as we start this passage. We have said since the beginning of chapter 19 that Jesus and His men have been in Judea beyond the Jordan or Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem. Now our passage today has Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And actually you see that phrase in the Bible a lot. If you read the Psalms and you see the Psalms of Ascent, what's happening is they're ascending to Jerusalem because what's what's going on Jerusalem sit on top of a mountain. And if you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. From Perea where Jesus and his peoples had been, they would literally go up almost half a mile in elevation. Junkin, yeah, he's got it up there. Good good job. I don't know if you can see this or not. So the top picture is a north to south view of what the land looked like. So on the top there, you see that blue body in the middle in the dip there? That's the Dead Sea, okay? And, to the, and then the Jordan River runs up there. from. Actually, it comes down to the Dead Sea, but from our picture, starts at the Dead Sea, goes up. So there on the eastern side, there up, up, they were up near these slopes here, but they're coming across the Jordan River, and they're going to pass through Jericho. And Jericho is actually 825 feet below sea level. Okay, and they're going up to Jerusalem, which is two thousand four hundred and fifty feet above sea level. So, yeah, they are going up to Jerusalem. It says that Jesus takes his twelve guys aside. He gets them in a huddle of sorts. Pass the ball is what he's about to say, ish. Okay, that's just fitting it in my story there. He gets them in a huddle and he has something important to say. And as he gets their undivided, he says this. So they're looking, they're waiting, and this is what Jesus says. See? We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Huh. I would guess that's probably not what they either expected or wanted to hear at this juncture. But this is the third time that Jesus has specifically said why he was going to Jerusalem and what was going to happen to him there. He had said it also explicitly in 16:21 through28, and in Matthew 17:22 through23. But here he adds some detail, seeing how it was we were literally days before the crucifixion here, OK? Uh, a little over a week, probably. Okay, literally days before this crucifixion would actually happen. So keep that in mind. Go forward in Matthew, by the way. We are in the very shadow of the cross here. And he's getting them ready for that. He'd said before that he would be handed over, crucified, dead, resurrected, and all that. But here, he says that he, the Son of Man, would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus was going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, who were the power brokers of the Jewish religion, and then they, those chief priests and scribes, would pass a death sentence on him. But they didn't have power to execute anybody. So what they were going to have to do is deliver him over to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans here, and then the Romans would mock and flog him, then crucify Him, meaning that He was going to die, and then He would be raised or resurrected on the third day. He would die by crucifixion and then come back to life three days later. Now again, that's the fundamentals here. That's what's going to happen. That is what was going to happen as they went up to Jerusalem. And that's pretty heavy, right? Well, yeah. The Jews are going to betray me to the Romans. The Romans are going to mock me, flog me, crucify me, kill me. And then I'm going to come back to life on the third day. And I can just see glassy eyes. Huh? What did he say? He said, dribble all the way up the floor and get a layup if you can. How do they react or respond? Well, let's just say they don't pass the ball to beat the press. Look at the next verse, verse 20. Keep in mind what he just said. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. <laughs> Not exactly what I would expect to happen here. Jesus is beginning his final march into Jerusalem, informs his men that he's about to be killed and then resurrected and somebody's mama shows up. Not Jesus' mama, mind you. But the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is who? The sons of Zebedee are James and John. Okay? And in a little bit of a twist, they are related to Jesus. John MacArthur explains it this way. Stay with me here, okay? Quote Matthew, Mark, and John tell us that when Jesus was being crucified at the foot of the cross, there were standing three women. And each of those writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, give us the names of those women. Matthew says there was Mary Magdalene, there was Mary Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and there was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark describes the three women this way. There was Mary Magdalene, just as Matthew said, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, just as Matthew said, and then Salome which must then be the mother's name, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Matthew just calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and Mark gives us her name, which is Salome. John says this, There was Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, then Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we know who Mary Magdalene is. We know Jesus' mother Mary. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, must be Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, as both Matthew and Mark tell us, that leaves this other one who was called the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, and now is called Jesus' mother's sister. And then MacArthur says, now I hope you followed that. If you didn't, I'll sum it up in a simple sentence. The mother of the sons of Zebedee is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. End of quote. So as Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem to face His torture and crucifixion, His aunt, the mother of His cousins, and these cousins just happen to be two of His disciples, His aunt comes up to Him with her sons, And what's she doing? It says she came up with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now that's an odd phrase. James and John come up with their mommy and they kneel before their teacher, their cousin, her nephew. It's a good start. It's a posture of worship and submission. Maybe they're in awe of who Jesus is. And they're wondrously concerned with what he's about to go through. He had just told them all this drama of what he's going to go through. Maybe they've been waiting for the right moment to proclaim Him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and just adore Him as a family together. It's family worship at the feet of Jesus' time. Well, no, that's not exactly what's going on. Because then it says that after she knelt before Jesus, after they knelt before Jesus, she asked Him for something. Hmm. Looks like she's not going to pass through the press, right? Look at verse 21 and hold on to your hats. And he said to her, what do you want? I don't know that he said it that way, but that's just how I feel when I read it. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So Salome and her little boys are knelt before Jesus. And she says she'd like to ask him for something. Hey there, Jesus, can I ask you for something? And Jesus replies, what do you want? That's pretty straightforward from Jesus I want to ask you for something, my beloved nephew, whom I love and treasure, and you're such a good person. Well, auntie, what is it that you would like? And she says to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, let's rewind just a little bit here, and remember where we've been over the past few weeks before we jump into this request. So, back in... After teaching on divorce at the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus had chided his disciples because they were shooing away a bunch of little kids who had been brought to Jesus to be blessed by Jesus. So he had chided that they they were like get, out, get these kids out of here. Jesus ain't got no time for no kids. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because if you'll remember, all of chapter 18 had been Jesus showing that the kingdom of heaven was made up of those who are converted and become like little children. Again, fundamental here. This is about becoming like a child, becoming converted, and being like an infant in my arms. That's a fundamental. And he had spent all of chapter 18 illustrating, illustrating that. He's telling them, pass through the press here. Be like a little kid. Don't shoo them away. So then, after they had shooed the kids away and Jesus rebuked them for it, a rich young man came up to Jesus and then walked away sad after he had tried to impress Jesus with his credentials and his ability. Remember that? I've kept all the commandments since my youth. Anything else I need to do? Oh yeah, sell all that you got and give to the poor. And he walks away sad because he was owner of much. And then Peter who was seizing upon Jesus' words on how hard it was for rich people to get into heaven, has this light bulb moment. And he dribbles up the floor and lays it in. And he asks, how much of a reward will we, the disciples, get in Jesus' kingdom since we, unlike that rich dude there, had given up everything and so virtuously followed you, Jesus? What about our reward? And how did Jesus respond? He responded with the fact that they would indeed be rewarded a hundredfold in this life And then that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the world to come. Oh, and they'll inherit eternal life too. But then Jesus told the story of the laborers in the vineyard, where the first were last and the last were first. Now, back here today, Salome comes with her boys, James and John, asking that her two sons be given thrones on each side of Jesus when he's reigning in his kingdom. So they heard the part about sitting on thrones, they heard the part about a kingdom. That's stuck in their heads. And so they bring their mommy to ask that maybe, well, just maybe, hey mom, you think maybe you could get us seats of honor? You think you can get us the two best thrones out of the twelve? Well, let's see what we can do, sons. Now who's responsible for this craziness? And it is craziness. One commentator says this, We cannot be sure with which of the parties the movement originated. Speaking of whether it was James and John or their mom. But as our Lord, even in Matthew's account, we'll look in a minute, addresses Himself to James and John, taking no account of the mother, it's likely the mother was merely set on by them. Set, S-E-T, not sit on. (laughs) The thought was doubtless suggested to her sons by the recent promise of the twelve of thrones to sit on when the Son of Man should sit on His throne in glory. But after the reproof so lately given to them, They get their mother to speak for them. Now the reproof that they're speaking of here is Jesus teaching on childlikeness back in chapter 18. Because why did he do that? If you rewind it back a little further, they had been arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom on their trip back from the north. Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. You're the greatest. No, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. Did you see how I dribbled through that press and just laid it right in there? And so Jesus goes on. This long discourse in chapter 18 talking about who's greatest in the kingdom. It's the one who's helpless, hopeless, and can do nothing for himself. So that's the rebuke that they're talking about there. And since they had been rebuked that way, they thought, maybe we shouldn't bring this up. We'll get mom to do it. That's ridiculous, right? So afraid of getting rebuffed by Jesus for asking for what they want, it seems that James and John appealed to their mom to ask about this throne thing. Now, they can't not ask about it, right, in their minds. I mean, Jesus had said they were going to sit on thrones. So that's cool, but two of those thrones would be especially nice. Those thrones on either side of Jesus, the right and the left of Jesus. Now, those, those would be nice thrones, man. Yeah, they would, wouldn't they, James? Yeah, absolutely, John. Maybe we should... Maybe ask Jesus if if maybe we could have those two thrones Because those are the best thrones And man, Peter's always getting in trouble So he's not going to get one of those thrones It's got to be us, right? Because we're like the inner three Peter, James, and John, right? It's not going to be Peter It's going to be us We should be on the right and the left Because Jesus likes us so much We'll get mom to ask for us Yeah Let me tell you something, guys If you're over a certain age And you got your mommy asking for stuff for you There's probably a problem We want these two thrones. Mom, get on it. (laughs) Yeah. Even though Jesus has just walked them through the fact that he's going to be crucified, they're thinking about thrones. They're thinking about the nicest thrones. So maybe their mama is a good idea here, but mom's going to do what's best for her boys, right? Well, how will Jesus respond to this? Well, he could bench them, right? Give him the stink eye like my coach did me. But watch Jesus, verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, we are able. <laughs> now note first that Jesus addresses the men, not their mommy, which is what the Commentator had said, and he answers them with this statement You do not know what you are asking. Now, this sets the tone for what's about to be said, and it's a little ominous. It's not a rough rebuke, it doesn't seem to be by Jesus, it's just a statement of fact. You guys don't know what you're saying, you don't fully comprehend the bigness nor the danger of what you're asking. And He elaborates on that by asking this question to them. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now what's that mean? Well, obviously, after describing to the disciples that He was about to suffer and die at the hands of evil men, Jesus is asking if these two disciples are able to do what? Are they able to suffer? Are they able to lay down their lives? Are they able to be hated, despised, and discarded by the world in order to see God's plan unfold and in order to bring glory to God? The thought behind drinking the cup that I'm to drink is can you finish off the same thing that I finish off? Can you drink the whole thing? What thing? Suffering. Don read part of Isaiah 53 this morning, which graphically described the cup that Jesus drank, the cup that He foretold them that He was about to drink. Ultimately, He's asking them if they can suffer as much as He's going to suffer because that's going to determine their place in the kingdom. Jesus is highly exalted because, Paul says in Philippians 2, He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So James and John, are you guys able to do the same? Are you able to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? And they show just how much they don't understand this when they answer his question, we are able. And again, think about a little kid, a little baby in the arms. Won't you get up and help me move this couch? Okay, I am able. No, you're not. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, yeah, we could we could do that, surely. They show that they don't understand at all. They don't have a clue. They're thinking about a kingdom and glory and places of honor. And what they're thinking is, I'll do whatever I got to do to get that. I'll do whatever I got to do to attain to that. I'll dribble the whole length of the floor and just lay it in, Jesus And Jesus is talking about suffering, crucifixion, dying, laying down his life. And they're all like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we can do that. No, it's no problem. I'll do it and then I'll bask in all my glory as I sit on my throne at your right hand, Jesus. I can do that. That's what we do, right, James? That's right, John. That's what we do. And then this from Jesus in verse 23 He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus answers their foolishness with the statement that they will indeed drink his cup. Now I can just imagine them looking at each other, nodding, patting each other on the back. See, I told you, I told you this is going to work out. But they, they surely don't get it. By the way, James was the first of the disciples to be killed. And John was the last one to die. It's a little odd little twist, isn't it? So yeah, they will drink that cup, but probably not in the way that they're thinking. But, Jesus says, to sit at his right hand and his left hand is not Jesus' to grant. Now what? Isn't he going to be king in the world to come? Isn't it his kingdom? Yes, it is. And... He says that those places of honor at his right hand and left hand won't be decided by him. But that they have already been prepared by his Father. Which is who? God the Father. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this instance, God the Son says that God the Father has prepared those two thrones. Reserved for blank and blank. And it ain't James and John. It might be a James or a John, but it ain't this James and John. I don't guess it is. Jesus says, it's not for me to say. The Father's already prepared that. Now, now there's a lot there. And we'll look at some of it in application. But for now, listen, just know that Jesus sees His place in the kingdom and is recognizing an authority... Above Him, in His kingdom. And we'll just leave that there for right now until we get to application. And that closes this little episode with James and John and their mommy. But there's some other people in this traveling group, right? And let's just say things aren't exactly harmonious after this little incident. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Oh yeah, there's ten other guys in this group, Right? The same ones who two chapters ago were arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom along with these two mama's boys. And just imagine this wildfire spreading in their group. Whoever saw it or heard it or or watched it happen goes back and tells the others that James and John had brought their mommy and Jesus' aunt to petition for the places of honor in the kingdom. And man, the ten are like, what? Are you serious? Are you for real? They brought their mom? Are you kidding me? Those bums! And the text says that they were indignant. Now it's interesting to note that that same word, indignant, is the word that Mark used when he described Jesus' feelings toward the disciples for chasing the babies away that we mentioned before. Jesus was indignant toward them for chasing the babies away. And now these ten are indignant at the other two because they're seeking their own glory. It means that they were sore displeased. The ten were mad at James and John, so here we go again with this greatness argument amongst Jesus' closest associates. So Jesus just must be failing, right? He can't teach. He can't get it through their thick skulls. What's going on here? Well, he's about to address them, and we're going to finish in 25 through 28. Here we go. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Oh man. These verses here, 25 through 28, are so potent so powerful, so potentially life-changing if we can just get a hold of them. And that's exactly Jesus' goal in saying this to His men. While they are jockeying for position, while they're fussing over honor and authority, Jesus drops a bomb to bring them back to His kingdom's realities. And let me just say this. These four verses would make a great focus for us to read, pray over, Meditate on, memorize, and live by. That's something I'm throwing out your way. These four verses. Jesus knows of the discord between His men, and He calls them to Himself. He pulls them back in that huddle that He had pulled them into when He told them He was about to be crucified, right? And He's about to go over some more fundamentals. Pass the ball. James and John sit down. I'm going to put Judas in because you ain't listening. Pulls them in this huddle, and as they assemble around him, he draws some clear lines around the differences between the way that the world works and the way that his kingdom works. He sees their competition with each other. They're stepping on each other to get ahead of one another. And he says, that's not how things work in my kingdom. He says that the rulers of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. That's true, right? The old saying is those who are in power will do whatever it takes to not lose that power. Power is a weird thing. It's an addictive thing. It's an invisible thing, but it gets a hold of us. Those in power seem to use that power to push people down, to keep other people down and exalt themselves. And how many times have we seen these powerful people exert their authority in a way that shows their power just like they're flexing their muscle, just to intimidate those who are under their sway? It's the way of things in the world, right? But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. You, my men, my disciples, my people, are not to conduct yourselves in this way. There's a different path to greatness in the kingdom of the heavens. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. In the kingdom where Jesus is king, the way up is down. Greatness is measured by serving. Position is determined by how low you can go. You guys are so concerned with greatness, with places of prominence and power, being seen and known and appreciated and rewarded, and that's not how you're going to get ahead here. I'm the model, Jesus says, and if you want to be great, you have to be like me, the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. You want to see greatness in my kingdom? Look at the path that I'm taking. And I told you about it back there when we got in this huddle before. The path that I'm taking is one toward death. Laying my life down. And I did not come to be served, but to serve. I'm a servant. Jesus was the epitome of a servant. That's why He came. And that's what He's trying to teach them. That is the very reason He came to earth. He came to earth to serve. Oh, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now remember, He had already told them three times now explicitly, and once very recently, that He was going to be crucified. And now He explains what that's going to do. The death on that cross... That he's about to go through is going to purchase people out of their sins. And the penalty for those sins, which is death and eternal damnation. That death is going to purchase Jesus' bride, the church. That death is going to make saints out of sinners. And that is exactly how Jesus will serve and give of himself. He's going to lay down his life, giving himself up to others and for others... Not exerting his dominance. Not elevating himself. Not flexing his omnipotent muscles. Serving, dying, giving the perfect example of what greatness looks like in his kingdom. No, this kingdom and this king are nothing like what this world and its inhabitants has ever seen. So he tells them, pay close attention, disciples. Pay close attention to this majestic king and follow his example, not the examples of the Herods and Pilots and Pharisees of the world. They're going about it all the wrong way. But there's something, listen to me, better for you. Is it harder? Oh, absolutely. But it's eternal and it's not temporal like all those other folks' power and authority will be. And Jesus says, No, guys, greatness is not measured in prominence, but rather in service and selflessness. Yes, thrones are coming for you, but not before you learn some valuable otherworldly lessons. And they're coming, whether you understand it now or not. So seek greatness in my way, Jesus says. Serve, lay down your life, consider others as more important than yourself. That is greatness. And that is where your reward will come from. Hate their luck. Stinks for them, right? What about us? Is this for us? You bet it is. What are we to seek? We're to seek His kingdom, right? Right? His kingdom in this world as it is in heaven. Anybody want greatness in the kingdom of heaven? I do. I want greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't, you should. Well, I just just want to get to heaven. We've talked about this. You should be seeking greatness in the kingdom of the heavens because when you do that, you're showing that you understand who He is and what your role in this kingdom is. And we're going to look to apply this with three S's. Submission, suffering, and servanthood. How do we seek greatness in the kingdom of the heavens? How do we seek to glorify God here on earth So that we will have rewards in heaven at his discretion. Three S's submission, suffering, and servanthood. First is submission. Now, listen. The concept of authority and submission is all through the Bible. I mean, all through the Bible. God said, let there be, and there was. Okay? He authoritatively spoke into nothingness and it became somethingness. And so for the rest of eternity, all of creation is subject to the authority of God. Now, He wants to see that established in your life, in my life, in our world, as we submit to authority. And if we have authority, how we wield that authority... We saw back in Romans, way back when, all authority is from God. And I mentioned earlier that I was going to say something about Jesus recognizing His place in His kingdom. I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. Listen to this. This is the great resurrection chapter. Okay. This is what Paul says, "...but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep." For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now that is mind-blowingly, crazy, deep, I don't get it, okay? But I do get this, that even in the Godhead, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we see authority and submission, even within the Godhead. And the Son is subject to the Father. And if we looked at John 14, John 16, we'd see that the Spirit is subjected and submissive to the Son. So if God shows us the perfect example of authority and submission within the Godhead, maybe that's something we need to look at ourselves. Well, ain't nobody going to have authority over me. I'm from West by God, Virginia, and we're always free mercy i don't like some of the governing authorities i don't like it they make me mad and if my way is to reject the authority that is inherently given to them by god himself even the bad ones there's something wrong with my heart and what we see today is Jesus is saying, I'm not going to tell you you can have those two thrones. That's not mine to give. Well, aren't you the king of this kingdom? I am and I'm subject to my father. Who are you subject to? Who are you supposed to be subject to? If you are not giving clear, a clear picture of what authority and submission looks like in your life, you are walking in sin. Well, they're stupid. Well, that shows your heart is wrong. Quit telling everybody why every authority is wrong. Stop it. That's not the way of the church of Jesus Christ. And I know, look around. This is a crazy time. Don't nobody know what's going on? Nobody. What's our heart attitude? I will submit to the authorities that are in my life. Whether that be your parents, whether that be your teachers, your bosses, your elders at church. And everybody that has that authority will give an account for how they've handled that authority. Leave that to God. We are those who exemplify submission to authority as Christians. I ain't going to be no sheep. You ain't going to be no Christian. I'm sticking my tongue out at you behind this mask. (laughs) This is a big deal. This is a big deal. If Jesus submits himself to the Father, we can submit ourselves to the governing authorities. We can submit ourselves to our parents. Peter said it this way later, 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh my heavens, might be another good one to memorize. Live as people who are Free! Like, okay, yeah, 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 that's what I'm talking about. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the Emperor. I'm just going to leave that there. That was submission. Greatness in the kingdom. We see in submission and we see in suffering. We've seen it over and over and over in almost every book we've ever studied here at Providence Bible Church. But it has to be said from this passage again, suffering is a necessary part of the Christian life. Jesus asked his two self-serving, glory-hungry disciples today if they are able to drink the cup that he himself would be drinking. And they foolishly said, yeah, we can do that. And then he said that they would indeed drink the cup of suffering to the very bottom, but they didn't understand that at that time. And they did both end up laying down their lives for the sake of their crucified risen king. So then what's that mean for us? We may or may not have to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. But are we ready either way? Let me ask you this squarely. Let me. Are you ready... Are you able to die for the sake of the gospel? And be careful how you answer that. Don't be James and John. Yeah, well, all we, we, could do that. And even more pertinent, I think, is the question of whether you're ready and able to live for the sake of the gospel while facing steady, persistent opposition and hatred from the world. Because that's where we're at right now. Are you willing to... If you're suffering... That implies that you're not fighting for your own rights or your own power. You're laying down your life. You're laying down your rights. You're staying strong, standing on the truth, not compromising truth. And you're willing to be mistreated for that. Here's the rest of that statement in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. through Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect... Peter says, are you willing to suffer for, what, for doing what's right? And then he says, for to this you have been called. Greatness in the kingdom is seen in suffering. Submission, suffering, and finally servanthood. As plain and as simple as we can say it, greatness in the kingdom of the heavens is measured chiefly in one thing. Servanthood. Let me ask you again, directly. How are you serving God? Oh, well, I think I'm doing all right. I read my Bible and I pray. You talked about memorizing a scripture. Maybe I'll do that this week. Yeah, God, Yeah, I think I'm serving him all right. Okay, fair. Let me ask you this. How are you serving the people in your life? Well... um. Ask yourself this question. Who am I supposed to be serving? Yes, you're supposed to be serving God. How do you serve God best? By serving the people that He's put in your life. And look at where that life takes you in your home, at your job, here within this body of people. Those are the people that you're supposed to be serving. So let me ask you again how are you serving your spouse? How are you serving your kids? How are you serving your parents' children? How are you serving your boss at work? How are you serving your coworkers? How are you serving your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Well, this virus thing is not going to be valid when we stand before the throne. Well, I see that you were serving pretty well. Then the virus hit. You hit pause. It's okay. I get it. No, no, there are plenty of ways that we can be serving the people around us. And maybe you've heard that about these stupid mask things. One of the best ways we can serve each other is to love each other. And some people said, I don't want you to serve me that way. Fair enough. But I feel like I can possibly help somebody if I'm sick and I'm not pro-mask. I'm telling you, I hate them. Okay? I hate them. I can't stick my tongue out at you behind them. I hate wearing them. I forget to grab one when I leave the house. I walk into a store I don't have one. I go back out to my car. Oh, poor us. We are really suffering for the kingdom's sake. And I'm not picking on you about masks. I'm just saying, really, can I serve people this way? I think I can. I think I should. And I think the government's telling me to like, well, I won't be back here. I hope that's not your attitude. How are you serving the people around you in your life? Not just wearing a mask. How are you laying down your life for your spouse, your kids, your co-workers, your boss, the people in the church? Didn't Jesus himself say, Matthew 16, 24? Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's exactly what we're talking about today. Submission, suffering, and servanthood. Deny yourself, submit to those around you. Suffer, take up your cross, and follow me. And Jesus was, we said, the epitome of a servant. So if I'm going to be like Him, I'm going to serve other people. And what's that look like? I've used this passage 168 times in application. And I'm going to use it again because it... (laughs) Another good one to memorize, by the way. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means held on to. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. In eternity when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord and that is going to happen, it's going to happen because He had the mind and the life of a servant. To the point that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be treasured and held on to. But he emptied himself and served you and me and the world by laying his life down to the point of a death on a cross in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And since he served us that way, we sang about it all morning. We came to this table and remembered and proclaimed it. Since he served us that way, he will be the greatest in the universe because he submitted himself to the Father because he suffered and because he served will you do the same Christian brothers and sisters because that's what greatness in the kingdom looks like pass the ball stop dribbling up the court for your own glory for your own praise submit suffer and serve. Let's pray. As for this God, His way is perfect. Father, we celebrate Your perfection. We celebrate the perfection of Your plan, and that plan calls us to submit, to suffer, and to serve. So we pray that by the power of Your omnipotent Holy Spirit, that You would help us to do these very things today, while it's still called today. Correct our hearts, correct our minds, correct our lives so that they more adequately reflect the glory of Jesus who submitted, suffered, and served so that we could come to know you as our Savior. God, it's not about masks, it's not about social distancing, it's not about a virus, it's about the sin in our hearts that elevates us above other people and makes us not want to submit. It's about sin in our hearts that makes us not want to suffer. It's about sin in our hearts that makes us not want to serve other people. Help us to combat that by the power of your Spirit and for your glory. We need your help and we ask for it and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.